listening to Miller and Moulton, exclusively on the Florida Sports Network. And now, here's Mark Miller and David Moulton. Top of the morning to you. How the heck are you? Final hour of the show in Lake City and surrounding areas, Tampa, St. Pete, Fort Charlotte, to Venice. The bonus hour with Pat Kerwin beginning it is one hour from now. We'll get back to Super Bowl 57 coming up. But first, Keith Smith. Let's put the NBA trade deadline to bed, shall we? Spot Rack's Celtics blog and the NBA front office show, which you can see live on YouTube. Follow Keith on Twitter at KeithSmithNBA, KeithSmithNBA. Keith, it's David and Mark. Thanks for doing this. How are you? I'm doing well. A little bit, little tired, but but I'm hanging in there. The weekend's almost here. <laughs> And needed, Keith. I mean, when they start throwing these 1 a.m. deals at you, it can make for a long couple of days. Just um, how surprised were you at the end of the day when you found out Durant was moved? Yeah, pretty shocked. I I thought we were headed there over the summertime. I didn't necessarily think this was going to be a deal we would see uh, come together at the trade deadline. It's just anytime it's a contract that's quite that large, you you run into – you know, is there going to be the salary matching issues? Like, where are we going to go to? And But the Suns were motivated. They they gave the Nets a, an incredible package of players and picks. And, and here we are now. Now Phoenix is reloaded to make another run at the finals. Keith, are you surprised that none of the big three in the East did anything of consequence? I mean, you know, a, a, a backup, you know, big for the Celtics and, you know, Jay Crowder for Milwaukee. And I guess these guys could play eight to 12 important minutes in the spring. But the big three basically just said, this is what we got. Did that surprise you? Not really. The the sense definitely with Boston and Milwaukee is we kind of have everything we need. We just need to be healthy. And it was if we can fill a couple rotation spots, that's what we're looking to do. And, and both teams did that. The, the Bucks wanted a wing with size. They got that in Jay Crowder. The Celtics wanted another big. They got that with Mike Muscala. Uh, both teams are going to be active on the buyout market because they're both sitting on open roster spots. So we'll see what veterans kind of shake loose and how that comes together. And then you've got with Philadelphia, they're basically – they weren't completely hamstrung, but they didn't have a lot of tradable – guys to move around that aren't already key rotation players so I, I, I'm not really surprised that those those three teams more or less did pat obviously Irvin and Kyrie obviously and Durant the big moves was there another move the Lakers move is there another move that was made that you think really changed the complexion of a team the Lakers move, as you kind of touched on there, that was huge for them because they swapped Russell Westbrook, who, you know, he's taken a lot of heat to today and yesterday, but he's had a pretty good season for a guy who's coming off the bench. But he just, you know, there were problems there that they weren't going to be able to get past. Uh, mostly for me, it seemed like on court type of issues. But now you turn that in, you turn him into D'Angelo Russell. Uh, Jared Vanderbilt and Malik Beasley, three immediate rotation guys for them, probably a starter in Russell. And then they were able to go and get a, you know, another deal done uh, later in the day where they kind of replenished some of the draft picks. They had sent for Rui Hachimura. So the Lakers had themselves a really nice trade deadline. The question for them now, though, is they lost again last night. They're 13th in the West. All this stuff of, you know, well, they're only, you know, X games back, you know, two or three or four or whatever it is. It all sounds really good, but you have to climb like seven teams to even get into those positions. 
And it's not like the Lakers are going to go undefeated while those teams lose all their games. So it's going to be a tough road ahead for them, but they're definitely a better team uh, today than they were a couple days ago. Lakers, as Keith mentioned, 13th in the West. And just to get to 10th, Portland's a game below 500. The Lakers would have to go 16 and 10 the rest of the way just to finish 500. They are three back of Portland in the loss column just to get into the play-in. Never mind what Keith talked about, trying to climb all the way up into the top six to avoid the play-in. He's Keith Smith. He covers the NBA for a living. Follow him on Twitter at KeithSmithNBA. Are you surprised that Miami did nothing? And for that matter, that Toronto and Atlanta didn't blow things up. Toronto, Chicago, Atlanta, more or less sitting things out, only minor deals for uh, the Hawks. And then it, Toronto getting Jakob Pertl, which to me only makes that roster even more confusing because the last thing I think they needed to add into that mix was another big man. Um, but that's more of a long-term play for them, so you kind of understand uh, that that move. But, yeah, it's, it was uh, weird to see those kind of middle-of-the-pack teams basically – say ah, we're going to do some moves around the edges or in the case of Chicago nothing at all and then for the Heat I, I you know when, when they made uh, the, the, the swap the other day Dwayne Dedman it was like all right well they've given themselves some flexibility but I tried to tell people you know this is more about probably getting Orlando Robinson converted being able to play in the buyout market because the big trade just didn't seem to be there. Kyle Lowry's market, I was told uh, throughout the day yesterday, was was nil. There, there wasn't a team willing to offer anything of value, and they wanted to send Miami questionable contracts back the other way. So I think it's you know they've kind of painted themselves into a corner a little bit here with this roster, and they're going to have to work around that now. Uh, the rest of this season is what it is, but now that's going to be a, the, the summertime issue for Miami to figure out. With all of the deals done now, is Phoenix the clear-cut favorite, or do you still like someone else as well as Phoenix with what they did? I still like Boston and Milwaukee better than Phoenix. I'm sorry, I just think... in the West, though, Keith. I'm sorry, just oh, in the I'm West. Sorry. I should okay. have asked it that way. That's my bad. Sure. No, in the West, I I, I think so. Um, and I know that's a little bit of a cop-out, but Denver's still really, really good. Memphis is pretty good. Luke Kennard's going to help Memphis quite a bit. The Clippers did good work at the trade deadline to kind of flesh out their bench a little bit with Eric Gordon, Mason Plumley, and Bones Highland. And we'll see. They're, go- they're going to get somebody else in the buyout market. Um, the-, the Mavericks adding Kyrie Irving, they're going to be a really interesting team. And then the Warriors are still, they're still there. They're, they're still the Warriors. They, you know, they-, they got Gary Payton in the second pack. That's going to help. They get Stephen Curry back. They're going to be tough. But Phoenix gave themselves a really good shot. I think the Suns' issue right now is, They've got to find a way to add a little bit of depth to, to that roster, and that, that's hard to do, obviously, with only working in the bio market. But because they have roles, they have minutes, and they're a finals contender, they're, they're probably going to be one of the top teams that adds you know, maybe one, two, or maybe even three guys here on this bio market. And it's clear under new ownership, there's no uh, reluctance to add salary and tax penalties and all that. They're, they're all in. You know, they're, they're a you know, I said it the other night. They're not in for a penny, in for a pound. They're they're in for you know a few hundred pounds for a few million pounds. Denver is the best record in the West. Are they, after all the wheeling and dealing, still the best team in the West? 
They, they might be. They, they're, they're really, really good. Nikola Jokic is absolutely incredible. And I think it's to, to the point of, you know, anytime a two-time MVP could be called underrated is a little silly. But if anybody is, it, it might be him. I, I think people forget how good he is. And they, they've gotten mostly healthy. And they, they've got a great starting five. They've got a pretty good bench. Uh, they're going to add a point guard, you know, in, in this bio market, whether it's Reggie Jackson or Russell Westbrook, or someone. Someone's going to come in and, and give them 10 minutes a night, which is going to be huge, huge for them coming off that bench. So they're really, really good, and that's uh, one of the teams, too, that has, has a, you know, one of the few remaining true home court advantages in the league. So it's really important to them to finish atop the conference. Keith Smith covers the NBA, Spot Rack, Celtics blog, and the NBA front office show, which you can see on YouTube. Follow Keith on Twitter, Keith Smith NBA, Keith Smith NBA. Keith, as always, appreciate your time and your insight. By the way, just want to pass a, a message along. We have a gentleman who watches us on Twitch who says, I am an avid multiple times a day Celtics blog reader. All right, and I love 10 takeaways, so he's a big fan. So congratulations. Uh, I I sincerely appreciate that. That that makes my whole day, and I needed a lift this morning. I'm running off (laughs) you, so thank you so much. Uh, Keith Smith, kind enough to join us once again. Dead struck there with uh, with a nice message, so we wanted to pass it along. There it is, a little association. Now it's back to the Super Bowl. Right, that's it. That's it. Come on. We spent the whole damn week talking about the trade deadline. Eight minutes today. That's it. And congratulations to the NBA for dominating Super Bowl week. Yes. Well done, gentlemen. Well done. Don't know if that's what you had planned when the week started or you thought it was possible, but it ended up not only being possible, it was accomplished. Hey, you took Christmas away from us. We're going to try to take Super Bowl week away from you. How about that? I think it's a good trade, by the way. I think it's a great... Seriously. They lost Christmas Day. Big deal. They got three days in February that they pretty much dominated. Well, they need to make sure, though, that they have the trade deadline on Super Bowl week every year, though. That that was the key. And, And also, let's be honest, the GMs in the NBA this year went nuts. I mean, they don't normally go this nuts. I mean, that's the other thing. Literally, you sit down at league meetings and go, here's the deal. All right? We're scheduling the trade deadline in the middle of the Super Bowl week. And you guys have to lose your minds every year. Boston, I'm talking to you next year. You didn't do it this time. Right. Pat Riley, what the heck? Okay? Snap out of it. So there you go. Now, for you know our regular listeners, we'll be back to the association in about nine weeks. Okay, the playoffs will start in about nine weeks, and then we'll return. Just wanted to let you know who's playing for whom, and well, knock yourself out. The Heat did nothing, and the Magic, you know, just kind of moving things around. Lee Sterling joined us about an hour ago. He picked the Philadelphia Eagles. More importantly, his daughter picked the under in the National Anthem, where she has hit eight straight over-unders on the National Anthem. By the way, line started at a minute 59 for the Anthem. It's up to 2.05, and yet she went under. I'd love the scientific breakdown. If you download one thing from our show today, 
at floridasportsnetwork.com. Download the second segment in the 7 o'clock hour, Lee Sterling with information from his daughter and a scientific breakdown of Chris Stapleton and the anthem. The dry air, David. The dry air. The dry air in Arizona was mentioned even. Okay? I mean, it's as gooberish as we've ever gone, and it was magnificent. The good news is one of us will be right with the Super Bowl. Right. I picked the Eagles. David picked Kansas City. I picked the over. David picked the under. I mean, one of us is going to be right on this game. That's all we can count on. And I I flipped, which I very rarely do. When this whole two-week odyssey started, I was I was on the Eagles. I was. And me, Mr. Linus Scrimmage Guy, who loves the Pro Football Hall of Fame class with all the defensive players that got in. I'm taking the Chiefs. What the heck? Welcome back to Miller and Moulton, only on the Florida Sports Network. Twenty-one minutes past the hour. Miller and Moulton, Florida Sports Network, FloridaSportsNetwork.com. John Perry, who was a part of three Super Bowls, two of them as lead referee. He's now the rules analyst on Monday Night Football. He will join us for the first time in a little more than 15 minutes. We'll talk about what it's like to ref the Super Bowl and also get into the whole just officiating, well, stuff that's uh, in and around the league right now. But we invited Roy Cummings back because, well, I sent him a text, Mark, that said, listen, if Rondé gets in, okay, we need you on the show. And Roy goes, well, I'm going to write it down because I think I got a good feeling he's getting in. And Roy, Rondé Barber, along with Zach Thomas, to make Dolphins fans happy, two of the six players, five of them defensive, elected to the Hall of Fame last night. Just your thoughts. You covered them. You know them well. Rondé Barber, a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I've known about this for a couple of weeks, actually, uh, and uh, chatted with Rondé a couple of weeks ago about it and uh, was sworn to secrecy, which uh, he was kind of laughing about because he was shocked that uh, the secret wasn't out there more already. But yeah, it's it's so deserving of Rondé. Look, this is not an original thought, but um, it, to me, it encompasses what a Hall of Famer should be no matter the sport. And, and someone once told me that their idea of what a Hall of Famer is, if you can, if you can't tell the history of the game without that person, he's a Hall of Famer. In other words, what did this player have such an impact that he's part of the true history of the game? Um, and I think that, that, that's very, to me, that sounds like a great uh, uh, example of what a Hall of Famer is. And in my opinion, you can't tell the history of the game now without Rondé Barber because he defines a position, a position that was basically invented by Tony Dungy and Monty Kiffin here in Tampa, and that's the position of the slot corner. And uh, it was Rondé's job. I mean, he just excelled at that position. He was the guy who stood up face-to-face against that slot receiver, um, but sometimes, you know, dropped back into coverage, sometimes attacked the quarterback, played the run exceptionally well. Uh, he, he was the prototype for what is now a slot corner. And most every team's got a slot corner. 
And uh, it's a guy who can play inside or outside, which is a, obviously requires a, a special skill set. Um, but the biggest thing is the numbers. You know, the numbers certainly warrant that uh, Rondé Barber is a Hall of Famer. Uh, the number of takeaways, uh, the number of sacks for a, for a, a cornerback, incredible, incredible numbers and uh, well-deserving. I always thought, and I, th- I think I've been proven right, that Rondé would get in more quickly than John Lynch. Uh, that John Lynch would have a tougher time. John's in, obviously, uh, got in. But uh, I always thought Rondé was more of a shoe-in uh, than John Lynch just because of the position he played, the fact that he was a prototype, and that uh, I don't know that it's going to be a while before we see anybody play it better. Well, and I think you touched upon something, Roy, that when you look at the position now, and there there are guys that can certainly do it, but his tackling. His ability, you know, we're talking about the interception numbers and we talk about the sack numbers, but you touched upon what he did against the run and how good of a tackler he was. That is something that most corners are not. And I think that separates him, again, separates him from the rest of the pile, if you know what I mean. Such a great point because that was something that was emphasized to him uh, early on in his career. Uh, There was a time there when Rondé, going into his second, third year of of his career, thought, Man, I, I may not be long for this league if I don't start playing better and start uh, becoming a better player overall. And uh, Monty Kiffin emphasized to him, look, the number one thing you've got to do is you've got to be able to stop the run. That That's the number one thing for a defense. And if you're going to play inside the box uh, against the line of scrimmage, you've got to be part of that. And we're not talking about a big guy here. I'm bigger than Rondé Barber, um, but uh, physically, you know, taller. And But the guy is just – rock solid and just so, so smart, just understand. And, and for a cornerback to accept that my number one job is to stop the run and tackle that, that really requires a lot of sacrifice in a way. And, uh, and, and that's what Rondi Barber was all about. Whatever this team needs, I'll do. And he did it. Roy Cummings, who's covered the Bucks for a long time. Bay News 9, pewterpirates.com. Follow him on Twitter, rcummingsfhcn. That makes four, Roy. And you can make a case, and I'll be willing to throw this out there. It could be five by the time we're done. Simeon Rice is a borderline Hall of Famer. All right, over 10 sacks a year for 12 years. All right, he came up big in the playoffs, particularly in 2002 with the Bucs. Uh, it would not shock me if Simeon Rice gets some momentum by veterans committees down the road, but Sapp, Brooks, Lynch, and Barber, four Hall of Famers on a defense. There's there's only like two or three others that have ever had as many or more. Yeah, you are talking about one of the greatest defenses of all time. And let's not forget Tony Dungy's in the Hall of Fame as well. It was his defense. Monty Kiffin obviously ran it, who I think belongs in the Hall of Fame, uh, for, for exactly what you just said. The fact that this defense has produced four Hall of Fame players, at least a fifth who uh, is in the conversation, uh, and the coach who implemented the scheme, uh, you know, put it in place. And then, to, so to me, the coordinator who ran the scheme and, and put these guys through their paces every day and made it happen. Um, that guy's a Hall of Famer, too. So and, and it won a Super Bowl. And you know what? It was in position to win several Super Bowls. I mean, it was this is the team that shut down the Rams in the NFC Championship game. Nobody thought the greatest show on turf was going to ever be slowed down. But the Bucs did it and they end up losing on a, you know, <laughs> extremely controversial pass reception or non-pass reception. So. Uh, absolutely. This is, uh, it is one of the greatest defenses of all time. It's right up there with the orange crush defense in the, you know, Denver, 
up there with the Steel Curtain in Pittsburgh. Uh, the Ravens defense, uh, it's right up there. You talk about the five greatest defenses of all time. You're probably talk, thinking about the 80 Bears. The, the Bucks are in that conversation. They're there. They're one of them. And recognized now in the Hall of Fame. How early into next week, or should it be next week, that we expect to see an offensive coordinator hired for the Bucks? Yeah, I got to think it's probably going to happen pretty soon. The, 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 the issue is it's it's like, you know, going through a deck of cards. Uh, they, they've got what, they, the ten, at least 10 interviews already, um, which tells me they're not really sold on anybody. I think they're going to end up settling for someone. Um, I don't know who it's going to be. It's going to be a quarterback's coach more than likely. Uh, we'll see what happens. It, it, I don't think it's a great choice. As I said, guys, I don't think it's a great job. I, I don't. Whoever takes it is, you know, just trying to take the next step and get some notoriety, and and hopefully that'll happen. But um, it's an offense in in transition. There's no doubt about that. You surprised that they're seemingly not involved in the car sweepstakes? No, uh, I don't think they can afford him. We talked about that. Uh, the money's just not there, guys. Um, I think it's as part of the transition. You're going to have to have a bridge quarterback. That's my opinion. David Carr is not a, a Derek Carr is not a, a, a bridge. Uh, to me, if you go and get Carr or Rodgers or something like that, you play that game, you think you can win the Super Bowl. If you couldn't win it with, with Brady behind that line, you're not going to win it with somebody else, I don't think. And I think the best thing to do is go get a Sam Darnold, um, someone like that. Uh, there, there's a couple of quarterbacks out there who, who you could have. Shoot, I, I personally, I would entertain going back and getting Jameis Winston again, but they'll probably move on from that as well. Um, but there's quarterbacks out there; they're second tier at best, and that's what you got to do. You got to figure out what you what you're doing going forward here, and uh, that's what this time is for. Roy Cummings, Bay News Nine, PewterPirates.com. Follow him on Twitter, R Cummings FHCN, with some reflection about Rondé Barber getting into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Roy, have a great weekend. Enjoy the game very quickly. Ten seconds. Who do you like? Uh, I like the Chiefs. I think they got the better quarterback, um, but he's not healthy, so it's going to be close. 28-24, Chiefs. There you have it. Roy Cummings here on Miller & Moulton. Roy, thanks. Enjoy the game. Thanks, guys. Zach Thomas, Rondé Barber, Dolphins and Bucks fans from a different era with a chance to, well, stick your chest out this morning. Five of the six players who got inducted yesterday played defense. Miller and Moulton. John Perry coming up in about eight minutes talking refereeing the Super Bowl. That's next on the Florida Sports Network. You're listening to Miller and Moulton exclusively on the Florida Sports Network. 22 minutes before the hour. Final segment for those listening in Lake City and surrounding areas, Tampa, St. Pete, Port Charlotte to Venice. The bonus hour begins at the top of the hour where Pat Kerwin will join us live from Phoenix. John Perry's kind enough to join us for the first time. He was a part of three Super Bowls, two as the referee, The last four years, he's been in the Monday Night Football booth as their rules analyst. John's kind enough to join us. John, it's David and Mark. Thanks for doing this. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, and good morning to both of you and all the listeners. So 
just talk to us about when they tapped you on the shoulder for the first time and said, hey, you're going to referee the Super Bowl. I mean, what was that like? How different, nerve-wracking, crazy is refereeing the Super Bowl? <laughs> well, I just got chills just just hearing you say it. And that, that may sound cliche-ish, but it's not. It still just tingles my body. In 2007, I got the call for the first time. And I loved how the league did it. Uh, I had a father that was an official for many, many years, and I'm sure that's that's how I got started. They actually called my father first, put him on a conference call, got me on the call, and gave me the news with him listening. Uh, and that was just such a proud moment for him and and myself 25 years in the making it's when you get going and this is what you're going to do that's where you want to end up and just to have him be such a big part of that was huge uh the second one I go 2012 into Indianapolis and that's a city that I had lived in for many years I'm a Hoosier to begin with so going back to that city to work the second one and unfortunately my father had died about 11 months before that so that was an emotional one, uh, just uh, for him not being there. And I'd never worked a game without talking to him before the game, never worked a game without talking to him after. And uh, cried on the field uh, for most of the coin toss prior to kickoff until the game found rhythm. I was an emotional mess, hoping that my father was upstairs watching and, and helping me get through that. Third one, total opposite. Uh, we were, were the next crew up after the NOLA no-call, the DPI, sent, sent the wrong team to the Super Bowl. Officiating was under fire. So you go into that one with just different mindset and different emotions based on the officiating world uh, just being attacked from every corner. So each one of these is special. John, you you know you said it's not cliche, so I, I know one of the cliches with any game is it's, you'd have to treat it like it's a regular game. As players, do you do the same thing as officials? I mean, do, do you have to have the mindset that this is just another football game, or does the Super Bowl make you prepared any differently? You do, uh, and it, it's one of the hardest things as a crew chief because you're in there early, just like all the teams, not, not as early, but four or five days beforehand. You're having meetings every day. You're breaking down film every day of the two teams that you're working. All around you is Super Bowl, Super Bowl, Super Bowl. It, it's hard to put it aside. Uh, but one of the hardest the hardest jobs that Carl will have this Sunday, and he's done it before, is getting the crew to relax, finding rhythm, finding normal, finding normal communication. You'll see it early. It's like the quick fall start, the offside. Players are amped up, so there'll be a couple things early on. And the same thing will happen with the crew. And the earlier you can get into normal rhythms, the better off you'll be. John, what video do you watch leading up to the Super Bowl? What is it that are you trying to point out just how style of play or, or things that they do wrong? What, what video were you guys watching? So you break down every week the crew does it, uh, the league does it, Super Bowl, of course, you have a little bit more time to prepare. you got two weeks and about five days to get a crew ready. But you're going down coaches' film, uh, both the sideline and all the end zone shots of every play. 
that you can come up with as a crew chief to ensure that the crew understands the formations that they run often, plays that they run off of formations that they present often. Does a team shift? Does it does it go in motion frequently? Is it a two-by-two, a three-by-one with receiver sets? So you're trying to make sure that they're aware, not so much of what players will do or don't do. It is discussed. I mean, you, you do point out a player or two that might push off at the top of a route. That's a tendency. A quarterback that'll dump the ball instead of getting hit. Those type of things are all discussed. But prior to the game, I would bet that Carl Sheffers will have this crew watch at least 100 to 120 plays of both of the teams that they will work. I think you kind of answered it with that last answer, John, but when you watch a game now at what you do, what is the first thing you're looking at? It sounds like it's formations to me, but what's the first thing you're looking at, and is it different than when you were a referee? No, even up at the booth. It's quite interesting because, you know, the booth stuff's all new for me, but I have found being in the booth that if I just officiate the game as a referee, 80% 80% of the stuff seems normal to me. So I'll go through my normal progression. Do I have 11 on offense? Do I, how, how many backs do I have in the backfield? Do I have five linemen up front? Do I have tackles up and on the line, which is becoming an issue? Quarterback under center, is he eligible? Is he not? Is he in shotgun, down and distance? Is the clock running? What do they need for a first down? Will an offside give me five yards for a first down? The officials go through a mental gyration at, in between each play. It's one of the things that we try to get young officials to do and do well is what we call a pre-snap routine. Mine was alphabetized. Assignments, ball, where's it at? Left or right? C, clock. D, down and distance. E, eligible. F, false start. G, get ready. By then the snap's coming, and we do that 150 times a game. Now imagine you're John Perry and you got me standing next to you in the booth interrupting you constantly (laughs) as you're trying to go through that mental checklist, Mark. I mean, he had it easy the first three years in the Monday Night Football booth. He didn't have some fat guy bothering him to his left. Now he's got to deal with me. Wearing costumes. You know, I think you do bring up a great point, though, because one of the things that I say quite frequently in calls like this is we all have a different lens. David's lens was different than mine during the game. Mine was different than his. Joe, Troy sees it offensively and what defenses are presenting to the... It's interesting how so many people watch the game in such a different fashion. He's John Perry. Uh, these days, he is the official in the booth, the rules analyst for Monday Night Football. Before that, 20-plus years as an NFL official, three Super Bowls, one as a side judge, two as the lead referee, and he's kind enough to join us here on Miller & Moulton. John, if you were to make one change to how games were officiated, what would it be? One change in how the game was officiated, I would take out the communication system that they placed in officiating folks' ears about nine years ago. I worked with games without it, and I worked nine or five years with it in my ear. Uh, it's a distraction. 
and I think it impacted officiating. Uh, officiating on the field takes all the senses that you have, sight, smell, ironically, sound, and you put an earpiece in your ear, as you well know, you probably have one in your, in your ear now, it changes how you hear things. Then you get six other people on the field. There's going to be two or three guys that want to be, t- want to be heard. They want to talk, so they're constantly pressing the button and giving you information and data. I don't want that before the snap. I want to be focused. I want to be clear with the vision, and I want to be relaxed. I don't want to process. As much as technology has helped, and I'm referring to the communication system that they have in place now, the replay system that they have in place now, I believe it has negatively impacted the on-field officials. A couple of things obviously came up in the NFC Championship game. Um, Clearly, Devontae Smith did not catch that ball. The Eagles sensed maybe he didn't, so they hurried up, so the Network Fox didn't have a chance to really show replay and what have you. John, is there is there any way to change to prevent that from happening? Uh, like college has it where the replay official upstairs can buzz down and stop and say, hey, I need to get another look at that. The NFL doesn't do that. Or is what happened in the NFC title game one of those things that's just going to occasionally happen? <laughs> Well, the NFL went a different route than college, but in hopes to get to the same result, they implemented a system a couple years back called Hawkeye. And what Hawkeye allows the officiating team to do is get every angle that is shot by a network immediately in real time as it is shot. So if in that game, on a championship game, there's probably 20-plus camera angles filming the game, the replay official upstairs had it right now. What he needed to do was find the shot that would show the football. He didn't get to that shot quick enough. Where he could have done what we call a replay assist, which he would have seen the ball touch the ground, rotate, radio down to the officiating crew. I know you ruled complete, but I'm looking at the play and it's incomplete. It's an incomplete pass, put the ball back at the previous spot, roll it down. He didn't get to that shot quick enough, so then it requires a coach's challenge, and with them being in a in what we some teams would call an ambush situation where they're getting the line quickly to prevent the challenge flag being thrown, that's what took place there. I think it's a really good play put in your back pocket because you all be on the radio come March, April, May, June (laughs) talking about the new rules and what we're implementing. Keep this in mind when they talk about Sky Judge. We have Sky Judge. They have Sky Judge now. It's just used limitedly. So this is the play that they want fixed. But at the other side of technology will always be a human being. It will never be perfect. We expect it to be, but it will never be. John, a couple of quick questions because we've got like two, three minutes left. In baseball, they add two umpires in the playoffs. All right. Are there blind spots in which maybe in the playoffs you add two or three officials, maybe down by goal line, sidelines, and what have you? Or if you get any more than seven, it would just be a mess. 
It is a mess. We tried it. Uh, we wanted to push for eight officials on the football field. And I worked several years during the preseason uh, with an eight-person crew rather than seven. And we couldn't find a place to put the person that we weren't running into each other, doubling up people, looking at the same players. Uh, so it just didn't work out. Um, what they do do during the playoffs, though, is they add five alternates. You see them on the sideline, they're the people with the black jackets. They look like officials. They got hats on, but they got black jackets. And they do help administratively uh, to ensure that there's no issues. They'll help with clock, penalty enforcement. They actually do all the ball changing. Uh, an official will act as a kicking ball coordinator. Um, so they, they are helping the crew, but to go with an eighth or ninth official, uh, we just we couldn't find a place for it. And, John, 30 seconds. Remember the punt in the NFC Championship game? And the Eagles argued that it hit the network TV wire. And who, honestly, of the seven of you, who's watching the ball in the air? Or are all seven of you watching players running? I'm just curious. Is there an official who's supposed to watch the ball in the air? I love this question. No official watches a ball during the game. Three hours. We try to teach young officials, don't look at the ball. We watch players. We watch bodies. We're looking for issues with people, not issues with balls. That's why no one on the field, if it did in fact touch the wire, did they see it. Did they have any clue? And it is in the replay uh, casebook, so it could have been fixed. Had it definitely touched the wire and seen hit the wire, the replay official could do it. But no football official on a football field watches the ball. They watch players. John, thanks for agreeing to do this. We really appreciate it. Enjoy your next few months in the Florida weather, and uh, hopefully we can do this again. Yeah, enjoy Super Bowl Sunday, guys. John Perry. Referee two Super Bowls, was a part of three of them. He is the official in the booth, the rules analyst on Monday Night Football. Great perspective and insight there from John Perry. I really enjoyed that. That was a lot of fun for me. I loved his perspective with his dad and talking about the games and and all that. That uh, We don't hear that every day. I don't think fans get ever really get enlightened because officials don't do a lot of interviews. So hearing how much they don't watch the ball and how it's done. Great stuff there, John Perry. Appreciate that on Miller and Moulton. Pat Kerwin, his perspective from Phoenix is next. The bonus hour in the 239 on the Florida Sports Network.